If you saw your child running towards the road and you saw an oncoming car that was going to hit them, you would take action. You would tell them to stop. If that didn't work, you would yell at them to stop. If that didn't work, you would run to catch up with them and physically stop them. You would do whatever is in your power to stop them because they're in mortal danger. And in fact, I just wager to say, most of us would instinctively kind of bypass just telling them to stop, right? We would just kind of instinctually yell, stop! And in that money, it's kind of funny. In that moment, it's, it's, it's kind of funny. Lesser things just don't matter. So the fact that the kid may not appreciate what we're doing doesn't matter. The fact that our neighbors who might not know the context and might think we're being unreasonable just hearing the shouts, that doesn't really matter. What matters is that this precious child of ours is running headlong into possible death and we've got to do everything in our power to stop it. Now, if you keep this in mind, you're going to be able to understand and receive and embrace the burden of our text this morning. Because, brothers and sisters, the truth is, spiritually speaking, we are all liable at times to be like foolish kids who, for whatever reason, are about to run into the road and get run over by sin. God knows this about us, and so he calls us collectively, the church, in that moment to be like parents to one another and to do our best to stop one another if we are running headlong towards death. He calls us to do this with one another even if we don't appreciate it in the moment, kind of like the kid. He calls us to do this with one another, even if onlookers might not know the full context and think we're being unreasonable or judgmental. He calls us to do this with one another because it's for our individual good and it's for the good of the whole church. Here's what I want to persuade you of this morning. The gospel creates a holy church. If a member remains in unrepentant sin, that must be addressed for the good of the member and for the good of the church. And to do anything less is unloving and tells lies about the gospel. Would you open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5? We're in this wonderful book of Corinthians. We've finished the first four chapters. Now we move into the fifth. And in the second section, we start this morning... The first section, if you remember, is all about foundational matters. So the Corinthians are caught up in the world's wisdom of the day. That's brought about a lot of rotten fruit. And Paul's been communicating, hey guys, your problems, they are the result of you losing clarity on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus as your foundation in life. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God. You guys have lost sight of that, and you're all fired up about the newest intellectual fad, and that's why you got all of these problems. It's because you're building your house on the wrong foundation. 
chapters 1 through 4. Now in chapter 5 and following, he says, okay, here's how you build your house on the right foundation. Here's the outworking of the gospel and the issues you're actually dealing with as a church. And they have got some big issues. Pick up in 5.1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since then you'd need to go out of the world. But now I am writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So we have a bad situation. By the way, you can follow along in the outline I've given you there if that just helps you. We have a bad situation. What's the situation? A man is physically intimate with his stepmother. A man in the church, a member of the church, is physically intimate with his stepmother. Now, on one level, I don't even have to describe why this is so wrong. Everybody in the room instinctually knows it's wrong. Even the pagans in Paul's day, the obvious non-Christians, they would have been scandalized by this and not tolerated. So on one level, you just know it's, there's a gut level reaction. This is so wrong. But on another level, beyond just the gut level, it's important for us to know why it's wrong. This is bad because God calls his church to be holy. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. 1 Peter 1, 14. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain 
from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles so that when they speak among, about you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. 1 Peter 2, 9-11. through God calls his church to be holy, to be morally exemplary, to be upright and honorable and pure and lovely. Why? Because that's who God is. And so to not live a holy life tells lies. It tells lies to the world. The lie that it tells the world is this. You know what? The church is no different from the world. The lie that it tells is that there is as much sin inside the church as there is outside the church. That there is as much greed inside the church as there is outside the church. That there is as much lust and hypocrisy and drunkenness inside the church as outside the church. That's a lie. That's not true. And it tells lies to the sinner himself. That he or she can live an unholy life and be accepted by a holy God in heaven. That's not true. Just the very next chapter, Paul says, don't you know that the unrighteous, the unholy, they will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And so to be in God's church... To live an unholy life is to lie to the world and to yourself. And it's to tell yourself that you're bound for heaven when in fact you're bound for hell. And so this is a big problem. Not just from a moral gag reflex standpoint, but from a biblical standpoint. God calls his church to be holy. This is unholy. So what should we do? How should we respond to sin in our midst? Well, here's what you shouldn't do. We shouldn't do nothing. That's actually what the Corinthian church did. They did nothing. Paul says, you guys are arrogant. You think everything's fine. You should have mourned. You should have recognized this is unacceptable. This man in the church is running into the road. His sin is going to destroy him. And you're just standing there. Don't do nothing. Do take action up to and including church discipline. Look at the end of verse 2 and let's read through 5. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Let me explain these verses to you. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. This is a call to practice church discipline. Specifically, the final step in church discipline, wherein a member is excommunicated. So, 
Excommunicated means removed from membership. Excommunicated means not being able to participate in the Lord's Supper. Excommunicated means the members of the church can no longer affirm this person's claim to be a believer. Now, let me just pause and say, I recognize that you may have a lot of niggling questions in your mind. And hopefully, I'm going to address some of those as we go. So what I want to ask you to do is I want to ask you to just hang with me. And as I do some explaining, I'm probably going to address some of the things you're wondering about. But stay with me for a minute. So again, verse 2, the end of verse 2 says, Go forward with church discipline and excommunicate this man. Now in verse 3, Paul asserts his apostolic authority. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. In the absence of the Corinthians taking action, Paul steps in and says, based on my apostolic authority, I'm telling you what you need to do. So he's not there, but he has the facts of the case. And like a judge in a courtroom, he's made a decision and he tells them what you need to do. When you are assembled... In the name of the Lord Jesus. In other words, when you come together as a church and my spirit is present, so even though I'm not with you physically, I'm with you spiritually, when you gather together and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus is present with his gathered church in a special way. For where two or three are gathered, there I am in their midst. When you are gathered together, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, you are to what? Deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. What does that mean? It means you should excommunicate him. Delivering a person over to Satan is another way of saying he or she is expelled from the church. He's given over to the realm of Satan. And you see, there are really only two realms in the whole world. The realm of the church, wherein God's people are under God's protection and care. And the realm of Satan, wherein sinners are unknowingly, they don't think it's happening, but it is, being used and abused by him all the way to destruction. The church is to deliver this man to Satan, remove him from the church for the destruction of his flesh. What does that mean? It doesn't mean physical death. It means something like what happened with the prodigal son. Do you remember the prodigal son? He gave full vent to all his desires. He like hit 18 and pressed full send on living out every single desire he wanted. But what eventually happened is he was crushed. There was eventually a death that took place. What he thought was going to be awesome and authentic and free from the chains of religion brought nothing but a pig slop and misery, his hopes for the good life, dead. And he went back to his father. That's what this is getting at. 
the hope in delivering this one to the realm of Satan for the destruction of his flesh is that the spirit will be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Translation, hopefully removing him from the church will help wake him up from his drunken stupor of sexual sin and make him think, what am I doing? Repent of his sin. Return to the fellowship of the church and thus show himself a true Christian, an heir of salvation, and be saved. Something very important here. The goal of church discipline is not punitive. It's restorative. The goal is the spiritual good of the sinner. The goal is him in heaven. He will not be in heaven if he continues as he is right now. He will only be in heaven if he repents of his sin and lives a holy life. And church discipline is designed to encourage repentance and holy living. Now, I just want to take a step outside the text for just a moment and give you a bit of breathing room. I know this is a little bit intense. And I want to just explain just a few other things about church discipline. I hope this is going to maybe answer some of the niggles that may be running around in your mind. First of all, I want to just tell you that the process of church discipline, here we only see the last step, excommunication. If we were to compare this text to Matthew 18, we'd find that there's actually three steps to church discipline. Anytime there's a member of the church in unrepentant sin, God would have a brother or sister in the church Go to the one in sin and appeal to him to repent. If there's repentance, then the process stops there. If there's not repentance, then God would have several brothers and sisters go to the one in sin and together appeal and call him to repent. And if there's repentance, then the process stops there. If there's not, then God would have the entire church be made aware of the situation and for the entire church to call the sinner to repent. And what it's hoped for is that the weight of the entire church calling this wayward one to repentance will have a good effect. But it may not. The person may still stay the course. And if that's the case, then the final step is excommunication. And that's what we see here. Now, let me just confess a pastoral fear whenever I talk about church discipline. My fear is that misunderstanding church discipline could create a situation where folks are silent about their struggles with sin or cover up their sin instead of talk about sin. Because after all, if I sin, doesn't that mean church discipline, right? Wrong. Keep in mind, brothers and sisters, church discipline is only for unrepentant sin. Church discipline is only for when you refuse to leave your sin. If you're confessing your sin to your brothers and sisters, if you're asking for prayer, if you're asking for accountability and help and coming to me and saying, BJ, I'm struggling. If you're being honest with your home group leaders and with your spouse and your friends about besetting sins, friends, that demonstrates a heart of repentance. Listen, the Bible has all sorts of room for struggle and fight against sin. The Bible does not have room for unrepentant sin. 
Listen, the Bible has all sorts of room for not being in a good place, but the Bible does not have room for being perpetually okay, not being okay, and doing nothing about it. The Bible calls us to repentance, not perfection. And let me also say that repentance doesn't necessarily mean that you don't commit said sin in question ever again. Some sins you genuinely repent of. You know what I'm talking about. Some sins you genuinely repent of. I hate this. I don't want to do this. I'm leaving this. But then you get ensnared in it again and you've got to repent again. Some sins are hard to kill. Somebody say amen or oh my, please. And in situations like this, there are several other indicators that reveal whether or not you're really trying to put this sin to death. One of those indicators is honesty and transparency. You're being honest with us as elders. You're being honest with your spouse. You're being honest with your home group leader. If you mess up, you tell the appropriate people. You don't have to get caught. Another indicator is that you stay engaged at church. So you're not absent. You're not hiding. You're here, fully engaged. You're not on the fringe. Another indicator is that you're not touchy. So when those who are helping you repent are checking in on you and they're asking you questions about what happened or how you're doing, or let's say it's the elders giving you direction and specific practical boundaries to keep you from this, you're not touchy. You don't bristle. You don't get defensive. And one more, and this is connected to the last one, you want to be shepherded. And so you don't hide from the elders. You don't ghost us when we text or when we call. You don't make setting up a meeting nigh unto impossible. No, on the contrary, you invite us in. You want accountability. You want input from your shepherds because you know we are given by God for your good. And just by the way, if you're wondering in the past, what have we pursued church discipline for here? Here's a couple of examples. We've begun the process when one spouse was about to pursue divorce without biblical warrant. We've begun the process for sexual immorality. We've begun the process for Perpetual non-attendance, just withdrawal from the church. We've begun the process for someone pursuing another in view of marriage, but it was a clear, unequally yoked situation, believer, non-believer. And I just want to address another possible elephant in the room. It may be that you're thinking, you know, this church discipline thing seems awfully judgy. Well, it is in a sense. We are being called as a church to make a judgment about unrepentant sin and take action. But remember what this is. It's us keeping one another from running into the road to get run over by sin. We're not pointing fingers. We're saving lives. And can I also say this? We live in a don't judge me world. So we're inclined to think any moral judgment about somebody's actions are just inherently wrong. Don't judge me. 
But our world is so hypocritical on this point. The cancel culture is full of damning judgment, career-ending judgment, reputation-destroying judgment, friendship-separating judgment, lots of judgment. And it's so fast, and it's so reactionary. Somebody tweets one wrong thing, and they're gone. Church discipline, by contrast, is careful, thoughtful, restrained, intentional, and designed for the good of the wayward one. That's, that's refreshing in our reactionary and actually judgmental world. Amen? You should want this. Brad and I have been told by prospective members when we're doing our membership interview, we've been told this exact phrase, I'm glad you're going to hold us accountable. I'm glad that if we start going off the rails, somebody is going to call. Brothers and sisters, godly accountability and authority through the church is a tremendous blessing. It's a blessing to each of us individually when we're wayward and moving to the next point. It's actually a blessing to the entire church. As Paul begins to do some explaining about church discipline in verses 6 through 8, the first thing he mentions is that it's for the good of the whole church. I want you to look at 6 through 8 again. 1 Corinthians 5, 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. This is an explanation on why church discipline is needed. And the first thing is that if sin isn't checked, it spreads and it infects the entire church. Your boasting is not good. So the Corinthians thought they had it all together. They thought they were fine in spite of significant and unaddressed sin in their midst. But they're not fine because sin spreads. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Unaddressed sin, represented here by leaven, spreads in the body. The whole lump represents the church. And so sin is just like a cancer. If you've got cancer, if you've got a cancerous tumor in your body, you remove it and then you undergo treatment because you don't want that cancer to spread. Same with sin in the midst of the church. It's got to be dealt with or it'll spread. Just ask yourself, how does it spread? It's like this. In a family, what happened when, or what happens, speaking for a friend, If one child does something, but it's unaddressed, let's just say they like take all the M&Ms they want from the pantry when they come home from school and mom and dad don't say anything. What's going to happen the next day? Well, I'll tell you, the siblings are going to head straight to the pantry and raid the M&M stockpile because they've been emboldened by the one kid whose actions weren't addressed, right? I'm actually, that actually didn't specifically happen in my household, but it could happen. You know what I'm saying? Same with us as a church. Unaddressed sin emboldens us to do what we know we ought not do. It does. And the opposite is true as well. 
addressed sin protects us from temptation. Do you know what the Apostle Paul said should happen if elders, if, if I go off the rails into sin? Do you know what the Apostle Paul said should happen? 1 Timothy 5.20 As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. You see, if the church sees that the elders are accountable, it lets them know, I'm going to be held accountable and I don't want to give myself to sin. So sin unaddressed creates a situation where others are tempted to sin in the church. Sin addressed creates a situation where, where we are less likely to pursue sin. And I saw an example of this at officer training school of all things. During the last week of officer training school, we are treated as something other than pukes and morons, and so we have a little bit of freedom, even a little bit of freedom to go off base. And one flight, a flight is a group of 12 to 16 officer trainees, one flight when they went off base, they drank a little too much, they stayed out a little too late, and they missed call to quarters which is the time when you absolutely must be back on base and in your quarters. They blew call to quarters off. You know what happened? They were stripped of any and all meritorious awards. They stood before the entire class of over 230 officer trainees, and each member of that flight had to explain their action or their inaction and how it violated the Air Force core values. Now I'll tell you, that did a couple of things. First of all, it showed that OTS leadership had integrity. Everybody knew what happened. The next morning, the rumor mill was flying about that flight, and the question was, is anything going to happen, or is this just going to get swept under the rug? So when leadership dealt with it, it showed us all, hey, these things really matter. They're not just talking about the Air Force core values, they mean it. And secondly, I tell you what, there was no other messing around for the last week of class. So Corinthian church... Redeeming Grace Church. Why do we have to address unrepentant sin? Because sin spreads and affects the entire body. That's one reason. The other reason, and this one is so precious, is because Christ's sacrifice creates a holy people. And I want you to look at 7 and 8 again afresh. Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So again, just remember, leaven in this text represents sin. Cleanse out the old leaven, deal with sin, that you may be a new lump, a holy and pure church. And then he adds this. As you really are unleavened. This is significant. He's essentially saying, be pure because you are pure. He's essentially saying, be holy because you are holy. 
He's calling us to act and live in accord with what's actually true of us. And what is actually true of us is that we are, in fact, a holy people. And how are we, in fact, a holy people? One reason. For Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. Now, in the Old Testament, the people of God... They were freed from Egypt and they were saved from death by the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. You can read about that in Exodus 12 and 13, but the short story is this. They were enslaved and God brought judgment on Egypt and he saved Israel from judgment through the sacrifice of a perfect and spotless lamb. Now, immediately after that situation, God institutes this yearly feast of unleavened bread, For seven days, Israel doesn't eat any leavened bread. Why did they do it? By way of reminder. That they had actually had to to get up and leave Egypt so fast they couldn't even let their dough rise. And this feast of unleavened bread is designed to remind them of God's saving work. How he freed them and he gave them new life. And God designed these things as a picture for us. The truth is, every one of us is born enslaved to a master worse than Pharaoh. It's our sin. We are inclined away from the worship of God. We are inclined towards the worship of ourselves and whatever it is that we want to do. And truth is, friends, we can't free ourselves. Which is why God sent Jesus, our Passover lamb, to save us. You see, just as Israel was freed from slavery by the blood of the Passover lamb, we are freed from sin by the blood of the lamb of God on the cross. The promise of God for any and all who will hear it and receive it is that you can be freed from your slavery to sin. You can be free from that dark sin that haunts your life and you know dishonors God. And here's how it happens. Whenever a sinner trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ, trusts in his death and burial and resurrection as God's payment for his sins, that sinner is forgiven Forgiven of all their past sins, forgiven of their present sins, forgiven of their future sins, that sinner is forgiven and that sinner is freed. Israel left Egypt free. Believers leave their sin free. And we leave it not just once, we leave it continually. Paul said, let us therefore celebrate the festival Not with the old leaven, the the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The seven-day feast of unleavened bread is representative of our entire Christian life. We are not to keep the feast. We are not to live our lives partaking in leavened bread, sin. But instead, we are to live our lives in sincerity and truth, uprightly, purely, cleanly, holy. 
Brothers and sisters, the reason why we practice church discipline is because if we didn't, it tells lies about the power of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ's sacrifice really frees those who believe. It frees those who believe from the power of sin. Sin no longer has dominion over us. We do not live in it. So to live in it denies the power of Jesus' sacrifice. It means you're lying. Or you haven't experienced it. So we practice church discipline because unrepentant sin in our midst lies about the power of Jesus' sacrifice. Now in 9 through 13, Paul offers some clarifications about church discipline. Are you still with me? Look at 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to, a sexually, not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. Paul had written to the Corinthians prior to this letter. And in that letter, he had said to them basically, hey, don't associate with sexually immoral people. Now, in the context of this letter and dealing with church discipline, he wants to clarify. Guys, I am not talking about avoiding all sinners. Guys, this isn't a blanket statement like, if someone's an actual sinner, then run. Because if you did, you'd run to the hills away from your own friends and family and everybody. If you couldn't be around any sinners of any kind, then you'd need to go out of the world. So he's not meaning to communicate that you should avoid all non-Christians. What he means is verse 11. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Here's what I mean, Paul says. What I mean is that you must not fellowship with a so-called brother if he's living immorally. So if there's a brother that's been put out of the church, how should you relate to him or her? Let's say you're good friends. Can that friendship just remain the same? No, it it can't really. It's not that you can't spend any time with them. It's not that if they're at a game that your kids are at, that you can't say hi and visit. But it is that the tenor and the tone of your relationship has to change. It, it, It can't be the same. It can't have the same level of happy connection or of fun or of togetherness. Why? Because he or she is living in such a way that if they continue to live that way, they're going to end up in hell. That burdens you, and so things just can't continue to remain the same. The tenor changes to one of a continued weighty call to repentance. You see, God is using you in that instance. He's using you to continue to be the means he intends to wake this sinner up to his state. The loss of your intimate friendship is intended by God to make him stop and think, what the heck am I doing? My my sin is even costing me my friends. And to that we would say, yes, 
And it's going to cost you a lot more if you continue. It's going to cost you your soul. The stakes are high, brothers and sisters. They're high. Which is why Paul says what he says in 12 and 13. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church you're to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Again, I know this sounds judgmental. And in a sense, let's say it. It is. God does call the church to make a judgment as to unrepentant sin and collectively say, this can't continue. And if necessary, we are going to excommunicate. Purge the evil person from among you is actually a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 13. And in that chapter, God tells his people that they can't allow any in their midst to tempt them to fall away from the living God. So if a prophet arises and tempts you to go off and serve other gods, you can't allow it. And if your own son or your own daughter or your wife or your close friend tempts you to go off to serve another god, you can't allow it. Paul appeals to this as his conclusion and he says, Corinthians, you, you have to take action. And I want to step outside the text for a second and just tell you the end of the story which isn't in this text. The Corinthians did do what God called them to do through the Apostle Paul. They did. They excommunicated this man. And do you know what happened? He came to his senses. He repented. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, by all means, bring him back into the full fellowship of the church. Praise God. In this instance, the wayward brother was restored. And that's the goal, the restoration of the wayward one, because heaven and hell are in the balance. Which brings me down to us. And so I just want to say a few words by way of conclusion. First, to any here who are outside of Christ, I want you to know that this judgment of church discipline, as weighty as it is, points to a greater judgment in the future. And it points to the judgment that awaits all who continue to live in sin, a judgment wherein you will be excluded from the fellowship of of the godly in heaven, and you will be separated forever from the presence of God and his people in hell. That's what this judgment points to, is that judgment. If you don't want to experience this judgment, then let me encourage you, flee from that judgment. You can avoid that judgment by turning to Jesus Christ and being forgiven. Come to Jesus Christ even this morning. I want you to hear something. If you, if you got confused, if, if you're just kind of keying in on one aspect of church discipline, you may have gotten confused. I want you to be really clear. The message of Christ is not do good and you'll be accepted. The message of Christ is not be clean and everything's fine. The message of Christ is come to me and I will accept you. 
Come to me with all of your warts and with all of your sins and with all of your addictions and with all of your mess. Come to me with all of that. You don't have to figure it out before you come to me. You can't figure it out before you come to me. Just come. Come and let my blood forgive you. Come and let my blood cleanse you. Come and let my blood free you. Come and I will free you from the power of sin and put you in a family that will help you live free from the power of sin. I'm going to free and I'm going to give you family that's going to help you live free. And that family's going to help you live free, not by force, not by fear, not by uh, according to unrealistic expectations, because they're all fighting sin too. But I'm going to give you a family, the church, who's going to keep you from running into the road and getting run over. That's awesome. Praise God. So non-Christian, you don't have to clean yourself up this morning. Come to Christ to be cleaned up by his blood. Come to Christ and be cleaned up by his blood. Be forgiven and then welcome to the family where it's messy and we're all on the way to heaven together. This is a blessing, isn't it? And to my brothers and sisters, just a, a few words. This is a blessing. Take a moment in your heart to thank God for this blessing of church discipline. And then, let me just encourage you to respond to this sermon in a couple of specific ways. Number one, hate sin. Hate the very beginnings of sin in your own life and in your own heart. Number two, be honest. Be honest with your brothers and sisters. Be real with your brothers and sisters. If you're struggling with sin right now and nobody knows it, don't hide. Don't hide. Bring it to the light. Confess it and ask for help. You will not regret doing that. And then finally, let's commit afresh to a culture of discipleship at Redeeming Grace Church where we remember that what we want most for each other is our spiritual good. Amen? Let's pray. Father, you are good and do good. And you give us all things needed for life and godliness. Thank you for placing us in the family of the church wherein you promise to protect us and keep us. Please, Father, do that and may we be thankful for such a thing. And not chafe against your protections, but eagerly embrace your protections for our good and for the glory of God and his wonderful name to be spread amongst the nations. In Jesus' name, amen.